rolling. I'm recording on my audacity. Let me take this giant cotton ball out of my mouth. I don't know. My voice is just going to be trash for this episode. That's fine. Are we going to do a clapperino? You know, we should do a clapperino. <laughs> Let me just make sure I got my scriptorino up here. <laughs> All right, let's do a clap. One, two, three, clap. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a good start. Just great. The arrangement of the fist with the giant thumb sticking out of it does evoke certain imagery that I was too polite to mention, but that's what we have Aaron for. Well, that's what artists do. They just sneak that stuff in whenever they can, but hey, you know, if you noticed back I then, you would presumably be jailed. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Hi. Howdy. Hi. Whatever. <laughs> we hope to keep our <laughs> listeners entertained and interested while Are we you break okay? down... Yeah, I'm fine. Break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this time on the podcast? We have Alfred Eli Beach, an inventor who was so good at his job that he had to hide underground. That's right, and you just know Mr. Beach is a stand-up guy because he uses all three of his names. Wait, what does that say about me if I only use one? It means you're a podcaster. Damn it! That's alright, our lowly social status just means we're in the same cast as Jesus. You know, I'm no theologian, but I'm pretty sure associating Jesus with us in any way probably counts as blasphemy. I have a lot of repenting to do. I mean, you're fine. You're just lucky that Jesus forgives you. And just like that, we're good. What kind so of Protestantism is this? We haven't had confession yet. <laughs> <laughs> to the priest, off with you, you vile sinner. Well, instead of doing that, maybe we should head down to the history lab? How? The elevator's gone. What? what? It's not gone, it's just different. That's an automatic trash can. The... <laughs> I uh I had a new elevator installed. It's a pneumatic powered tube deal. <laughs> well, you're going first cuz I'm not climbing into the shiny chrome trash can myself. <laughs> yeah, uh okay. Well, you're going to have to if we're going to get this episode done. Come on, just climb aboard. It, I promise it won't launch you to the moon just halfway. All right, I guess the sooner we get this over with, the sooner we'll be dead, and that's all for the best. <laughs> that's right. The Notorinos. <laughs> Notorinos. I don't know. This has been like a thing on my Discord lately. Every time the one guy on my Discord from New York is on, we just add Eno to the end of everything. Eno? Because <laughs> of Italians, you know, New York. Oh, yeah. I make fun of Italians in this episode. Oh, perfect. Science, invention, the cornerstones of human innovation. This is the story of Alfred Eli Beach, the most scientific American in the history of the nation. 
and the invention privateer behind the construction of New York City's secret subway system. See, that wasn't so bad. I mean, considering the condition of the old elevator, I'm pretty sure we could have rappelled down the shaft with bed sheets and had a smoother ride. Mm-hmm. So, George, if you had to move a ton of people around one of the largest cities in the world, what would be your approach, and how would you secure your funding? Um, I'm going to say ants and <laughs> ants. I will take no questions. <laughs> no, I will not elaborate. I've forgotten what I've already said. Uh, well, I guess if I had to move a ton of people around one of the largest cities in the world, um, I would use personal airships. Like a little Zeppelin you tie, you know, around your, I don't know, you have like a backpack deal and it floats above your head and you can just control it with like little hand controls, like a VR VR game or something. This just yeah, sounds you, sort of like Just Cause. It is a lot like Just Cause. Yeah. <laughs> but Just Cause, the multiplayer mod, you know, where you've got a hundred people flying around the map. I didn't know a multiplayer mod, to be perfectly honest. Dude, it was the coolest thing ever. Every the, it was total chaos. Everybody's just flying around, stealing jets, crashing them into towers. Like, I mean, well, it was it was like nine eleven all over again. <laughs> oh God, we're like one minute into the episode, and you've already mentioned nine <laughs> eleven. Don't get me started. <laughs> then, uh, well, okay, so I'd take the airship just cause approach, and to secure my funding, I'd of course rob the drug cartels. Excellent. And sell. Yes, sell all of their inventory to countries that are evil or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> sell them at Disneyland. That's what I would do. Okay, so computer, please bring up Alfred Eli Beach. There we go. So, George, if you would be so kind, would you please describe the image below? Respectable. Looks very respectable. Um, we've got a man in... What is that, like, 1880s attire, mm -hmm. I want to guess? Um, so one of those very, very stiff white collars, the little, like, super narrow bow tie looking thing, um, immaculately parted hair, obviously. Yes. Um, like, several animals had to be melted down to make the glue to hold that part in place. Um <laughs> We, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a photograph in profile, so he's kind of looking off to the to the left. Um, got a little bit of a mustache, a steady and determined gaze, at least according to the one eye I can see. A marginally large nose, but not, not misshapen. Um, I'd give him an, a 7.5 out of 10 jawline. Seems like he has kind of small lips. And ears that are approximately 5% larger than they should be. But overall, like, I'd say solid 8 out of 10. Like, this is a pretty okay looking dude. Looks respectable. Looks intelligent. Looks like the kind of guy who, like, if I asked him a question, I'd probably believe what he told me. Mm-hmm. He looks like a museum curator. Oh, that's good. I like that. That is very yeah. true. Like, you'd want, you'd want to see him, like, observing as people came in. You know, just surveying for someone who really wants to learn the important stuff. 
Um, yes, this is uh, this is Alfred Eli Beach, and he has a very interesting story. Woohoo! But but I suspect um, you might have a slightly more interesting story. <laughs> oh, what did I you, don't know what, about that. What did you buy this week? I didn't buy anything this week. Oh. What did you get for free this week? <laughs> well, I haven't gotten it yet, but I have convinced a man to give me for free a 1920s bank vault. Nice. Which is located about 100 miles away and which I will be attempting to move tomorrow. I have assembled a ragtag group of volunteers and shoddy equipment and we are going to attempt to move a very large, heavy bank vault <laughs> and put it on a trailer and drive it up here and unload it without anyone getting squashed. It's going to be a monumental undertaking. I'm kind of excited for it. Because, like, I mean, plot twist, bank vaults are really, really heavy. Yeah. How tall is this thing? Six foot tall. Yeah, see, that's gigantic. Yes, it is a six-foot-tall bank vault, which we're going to attempt to get onto a U-Haul trailer. Uh, how did this guy acquire this? Like, what's the story with he's this He's a thing? realtor, and it was in a building he's renovating, so he just wants it out. Wow. And so um, you're getting it for free. And, yeah, and, man, I was one of the first people... I, I think I was the first person to contact him, but in the, like, day that he posted this ad of wanting someone to take this away, he got over 50 people wanting it. Because wow. it turns out this thing's actually like worth a lot of money too. So you need a vault for the vault, is that? What yes, I need a vault to put my vault in to protect it. It's the ultimate insurance. So anyway, it's going to yeah. be great if I can get this thing unloaded without any of my friends dying. Um, it'll be cool. I can put things in it. I guess. Um, I I think you should take ample video of this expedition so I can see. <laughs> and just think, like nobody's walking off with it, like. You're not going to break into somebody's house and just, like, make off with their bank vault. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd, I think you'd have to have Mary Poppins' bag to do something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, so it should be it should be pretty exciting. I can fill it with guns and ammo and stuff or, you know, rare artifacts from the past. Who knows? Maybe you can put the not script in there, too. Maybe I could put the not script in there. Ooh, I know. Put your mic in there and re we'll record a... Uh... We'll record vault casts. <laughs> vault casts, yes. Well, I mean, this is all dependent on us actually making it, because I've already said that if anyone dies while doing this, we will bury them in the vault. So I'm hoping nobody <laughs> dies so that I still get the vault. <laughs> Technically, you in that vault. <laughs> I didn't say how long they'd be buried in the vault, so maybe as soon as we do, we just dig them back up, throw the body in the hole, and take the vault back. <laughs> <laughs> That would be a cursed vault. You'd probably have the soul of whoever died trapped in there forever. Perfect. I mean, things that are hard to steal, a bank vault. Things that are harder to steal, or steal a cursed bank vault <laughs> with a vengeful spirit locked inside. Oh my gosh. Well, this sounds like a, a worthy expedition, and it sounds about your speed. So yeah, so if I'm never heard from again, dear listeners, it means I was crushed under a bank vault tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's great. We've got like, we've got an engine hoist for lifting up cars that we're going to try to use to lift it onto the trailer. And the best part is it's Harbor Freight brand. <laughs> <laughs> the 
This is so you. <laughs> oh wow. Uh your your secret stash of of Tide Pods and Harambe memes stored in the bank vault. Yes. And I've already had one person who volunteered to help me back out, but feel bad about it. So he paid somebody else a hundred dollars to take his spot volunteering. That person doesn't actually want to do it. So they just called me. It was like, Hey, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks to not be there. <laughs> so somehow I've just made money by not getting help. <laughs> That's just, it's, you just live in the wild wasteland out there. I'm telling you. Yes. I know you activated that perk. The moment you were born wild wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a story. I hope you don't die. Um, yeah, me too. Because <laughs> then I then I have to find another co-host, and that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> not in this economy. <laughs> no. No. Well, let's talk about Alfred Eli Beach, because it's uh, it's time to get into the episode, probably. And uh, I'll just preface this by saying, this is a weird story. And I had to do a lot of reading uh, to get basically a picture of what was happening here, because it's... It's not that it's all over the place, but it deals with corruption and intrigue and, you know, corporate secrets and stuff like that. And it all happened in the 1870s, which means that the paper trail is kind of hard to follow because it's gone. <laughs> Sad. Sad. <laughs> they should have written it in stone. Anyway, <clears throat> also, my voice is kind of killing me right now, so I apologize if I keep, like, my voice keeps cracking or I sound like a 12-year-old or a 40-year-old interchangeably. Anyway. New York what, City. what else is new? <laughs> new York City, 1870. Amidst the bustle and dirt of city life in the late 19th century, one could be forgiven for being slightly overwhelmed. New York has always been... I'm not going to do that voice. New York has always been a pretty dirty town. Episode what, over. We've already made a, a <laughs> solid, legitimate point. I say we just, we just, you know, wind it down now. That's, uh, that's what you get when you increase the location's population from 60,000 to something around 4 million in the space of 70 years. Um, yeah, it, it gets to be kind of a hustle-bustle dealio. A bustlerino, you might say. <laughs> Not only was New York City the rising hub for European immigration as America began to grow again after the Civil War, it was the home of many black immigrants from the southern United States and Central America, growing simultaneously as a thriving economic center for international trade and banking, and as a place where everything was happening. New York City was the original American melting pot. If you were there, you were probably something like a new arrival. And this came with a lot of baggage. <laughs> no, yeah. say it isn't so. <laughs> yeah, so different cultures didn't really get along super well at this time, and there was still a language at that difference. time. Oh, jeez. No, at that time, they, they these Europeans didn't all speak English yet. So there wasn't, like, the white people phenomenon. It was, like, Italians and... Irish and some Anglos in there somewhere like there's a Hungarian over there and and there's a Belgian over here and everybody's super different and we don't speak the same language so that's a little bit scary uh, especially for normies and immigrants uh, it's you, you kind of stick to your own when you come to a new country so you had ghettos neighborhoods and communities that were still very segregated 
Um, the Irish, who had run out of potatoes at home, were on both sides of every major riot the city experienced as both cops and protesters, while the Italians were forming their own little mafias inside of mafias, eating lots of spaghetti after their latest boxing matches. Catholics were being persecuted for doing Christianity wrong. Protestants were protesting against something, probably papistry. And according to the internet, the Jews were 100% conspiring against all of them the entire time. Compared to today's homogenized world, New York City was like a zoo without cages. In the 19th century, everybody was basically a walking caricature of their own culture, especially in New York City, because it turns out cultural differences get widely magnified when in proximity to other cultures. <clears throat> they do. The studies show this, that you become, like, by not being in Italy and being around people who are not Italian, you become more Italian. Oh, no, that's, that's absolutely true, though. Like, there are traditions that are still carried out by, like, the Italian community in New Jersey that have not been done in, like, 50 years in Italy. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's sort of like a, you want to preserve a little bit of home so you kind of go overboard because everybody around you is so different. <clears throat> you sounded like you were going to say something else. Oh, I was going to say, I was just thinking about, like, don't even get me started on, like, the contrast between my relatives in Germany versus me in America in terms of how we feel about being German. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to ask any, any questions there. That's sort of a frightening concept. We're all afraid of Germans over here. <laughs> Throughout history, many people have been. Yeah, well, and with reason. <laughs> but anyway, all the these Danes different... had it coming. Okay. All right. You know what? Just, I'm going to stop you right there. Cause I know you're going to take this to the logical end. <laughs> The Danes deserved it. All right. <laughs> anyway. But, <laughs> all these Europeans and all these people from the South and all the people from Central America who had come in through the port were all becoming Americans, generally speaking. And what do Americans do in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s? Business. Lots and lots of business. I was going to say crime, but basically the same thing. Well, yeah, it's the same thing. Are you pan I already mentioned the mafia. I mean, it's like business and crime. What's the difference? One, you're paying the cops. The other, you're not. <laughs> yeah. Basically. So the cultural melting pot I'm wasn't... I'm going to get assassinated by the Fraternal Order of Police one of these days. You're going to deserve it, too. <laughs> So the cultural melting pot wasn't some meme, it was real. Through these portals would pass millions of new Americans, and at that time, a whopping 70% of the entire country's imported goods. That's a lot. Like that's 70%. actually like a, that's a like shockingly high figure. Yeah, 70%. Um people and things from all over the world entering into the Coliseum of trade and work. Hustle, bustle, newsboys, carriages, policemen, children all over the place. Some Italian shouting bada-bing, bada-boom from a windowsill. Great stuff. New York City had a lot of issues to solve. <laughs> I like how that transitioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't have Italian shouting bada-bing, bada-boom. <laughs> Gotta put a stop to that. Policing, corruption, tribal turf wars. Same That's thing. my watch. Um, <laughs> this was an era, era that produced William Poole and the Bowery Boys. Um, the Gangs of New York-style stuff. You've seen that movie, right? I've seen that movie. Yeah, I have never watched it, except for the clip with Bill the Butcher or whatever. 
Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. With the yeah, with the before the big fight scene when they're giving their their little speeches. <laughs> Prepare to receive the true faith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were all goofing off back then. <laughs> Just absolute, absolutely off the chain. Yeah. But Bre- there was something... breaking it down even. Yeah, almost <laughs> like yeah the, the uh, Catholic Protestant thing. I think we we can we easily forget how big of a divide that was. Oh well, no, I mean day. like churches were regularly burned down in New York in anti-Catholic riots. I've told mm-hmm. you about Dagger John, right? Yeah, you mentioned it not not just a couple episodes ago, actually. Did I? Yeah, who yeah threatened yeah. who threatened the mayor of New York, which was honestly pretty baller. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of baller stuff going on back then. You, there kind of had to be because there was just so much action. It's because right? we hadn't started growing soybeans in the U.S. yet. Ugh. I'm just hitting all the notes today, aren't I? Better times. <laughs> yeah, you're really just going off. <laughs> but with all this going on, there was still something remarkable going on in this city. Because despite all of these differences and difficulties, New Yorkers still seem to get shit done. And a lot of it, too. At this time, the lumbering Babylon was really starting to crank out all kinds of interesting people, probably because it was just so dysfunctional. But New Yorkers seemed to thrive on that. There was nothing stable about the place. So the people learned to be be dynamic, scrappy, and always on the move. Uh, Electric lights began to appear in the cityscape. And that's when you stopped being able to see the stars. Yes. That's when it began. In the not script. (laughs) (laughs) Machinery of all kinds was springing up. Infrastructural problems were being solved with new innovations, but transportation was still somewhat stuck in the Stone Age. The horse-drawn streetcar was still the dominant mode of public transportation. Well, that and your feet, of course. Uh, And then one day, all of a sudden, New York City had a subway station. Just all of a sudden, it was there, open to the public. (laughs) Can I get the Italian BMT on herbs and cheese? <laughs> Not that kind of subway. But they you lied to me. I thought this was about subway. <laughs> I'm leaving this do... call right now. Please don't. <laughs> they... the, the subways do sort of appear in the night, don't they? Like you wake up one day and there's just like a subway across the street. You're like, what the hell? And then one day it's gone. Yeah. And X-Files nobody knows why. theme. <laughs> So how did this happen? How was there all of a sudden a subway station, not a subway restaurant, here in New York City? Well, it's a funny story. So let's back up a little bit. Remember what I was saying about New York being dysfunctional? Well, it turns out when things aren't organized or there's just too much shit going on to keep track of it all, it's easy for corruption to creep in. And New York was, is corrupt as hell. Not, some things never change. But behind every storefront was a gang, a mafia, some kind of political faction, you name it. And the biggest boy of all and in charge of this madness was Boss Tweed. Literally named Boss Tweed. It is one of my favorite names from American political history. Yeah, and this is the first time researching this. This is the first time I ever heard of the guy. And I was reading it, I'm like, is this like Bioshock Infinite? Like, what, Boss Tweed? Like, you can see him in his tweed jacket, you know? But no, Boss wasn't actually his first name. It's it's actually fun. Boss Tweed, because it is such a distinctive name, actually once I was I used it as a as a backhanded uh 
Actually, I think it was actually pretty direct insult. I was dealing with some some local politics bullshit and somebody in an incredibly minor political position in a township who really thought they were some sort of political boss. And I literally said that at one point at a political thing. I was like, okay, settle down, boss Tweed. You know, this is literally township government. Like, yeah. calm, calm it down. <laughs> well, if he knew how bad boss Tweed actually was, he might actually be insulted. But since so few people know their history... <laughs> I'm guessing it didn't take. I don't think he had any idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so Boss wasn't actually his first name, but it was how he was referred to by the good people of New York City. Um, All Boss four of them. <laughs> <laughs> Boss Tweed was basically the Gustavo Fring of New York City at the time. Everywhere you looked in the streets, you would see this man's influence. He owned a good chunk of the city and directed both the 10th National Bank and the New York Printing Company, as well as others. To be a man of influence, figure out how to control the money and the messaging, and you've got it made in the shade. And this is what Boss Tweed figured out. Boss Tweed wasn't just a rich guy who bought things and then controlled them. He didn't start there. William Tweed, as his Christian name was before he became the boss, was an immigrant son who worked as an apprentice to a saddle maker. Like many immigrants, he grew up in an ethnically isolated pocket of the city, the Scots-Irish district. Of course. Yes. It's a, when you actually look at how many people were Scots-Irish, it's disturbing. Mm. Why is that disturbing to you? Why do you hate the Scots-Irish? I thought you were Irish. Well, you know who the Scots-Irish are, right? No. They're Scottish Protestants who were brought over to Ireland by the boatload to occupy the land they'd kicked all the Catholic Irish off of to be a sort of buffer between the good proper protestant north and the catholic south they'd kick all the catholic farmers off their land that their families had lived on for hundreds of years and repopulate it with scottish protestants to serve as the shock troops of the expansion of protestantism in ireland so not popular with the irish no yeah yeah and so uh, an ethnically isolated pocket of the city might actually be necessary when you're having like i don't know police riots and all that sort of thing Presumably. <clears throat> yeah. So at about the age of 25, Tweed joined the Masons and the Odd Fellows, two fraternal groups that probably gave him a more ide uh, defined identity as to who he was in this crazy town. Can I actually just take a moment to say something completely irrelevant? Please do. I saw a car. It was a, um, I believe it was a Porsche 911. With <laughs> it, it, it's, it had the, uh, the compass and square like a big compass and square decal on the back and a vanity plate that said Master Mason. And it was just like this like fat 40-year-old white guy with like a backwards baseball cap and a tank top. I was like, wow, how they've fallen. <laughs> Master Mason. They just give that to anybody these days, don't they? No, I had like, somebody... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, this man does not seem like the type of person who's like plotting the downfall of royal governments in Europe anymore. Yeah, the Masons the Masons have taken a fall. Let's just put it that way. Um, the Odd Fellows, I really didn't want to look into too much because I, I was trying to stay because focused on the story. they're odd. They're Odd Fellows. Um, but anyway, so you join these clubs in America because you need an identity. You need a fraternity. You need a place. And it makes you feel special to be part of the Masons. Um, he also joined one of the aforementioned... Actually, I didn't mention this. Um, have, you know about the fire brigades in New York City? 
Oh, they're like gangs, aren't they? Yeah, they're like gangs that would basically go to a fire and charge you to put it out. This is the Roman way. Yeah, and they would uh <clears throat> they would fight each other for jobs, basically. So um, Tweed joined one of these gangs and got in many, many of these fights, um, and he made a name for himself with his fire axe, uh, which, of course, didn't use to rescue people so much as he did to fight other gangs for this work. Wow, New York just sounds idyllic. Yeah, doesn't it? He was so good at the fire brigade hustle, though, that he got the attention of the filthy New York Democrats. For those of you who are new, I call Democrats and Republicans filthy <laughs> as a joke. Who got him elected to the U.S. House of Representatives? So he goes from being a literal fire brigade gang member mason with an axe to literally being on the House of Representatives. So he didn't really do much, though. He served for two years, and this was more of a street cred role than anything. Um, among other things, Boss Tweed got himself certified as an attorney by an actual judge named George G. Barnard, despite having literally no training in law. Oh, yeah, that's that's actually technically you don't need to go to law school to be a lawyer. You just have to pass the bar. It's just that mm -hmm. these days they won't let you take the bar if you haven't, you know, gone and get got a formal education. But in theory, you don't have to have any training to be a lawyer. Yeah, but still, it's just he just kind of it's went like what's his uh, what's his name? Thaddeus Stevens, the famous American abolitionist. The only reason he became a lawyer is because he got his examination committee drunk before they gave him the examination. <laughs> Brilliant. Whatever works. And hey, it proves that he, he's, he's not a, he's a, he's a better call Saul kind of lawyer. <laughs> just give him a little of that tequila and you're, you're good to go. But from there, uh, Boss Tweed just found himself getting bigger and more profitable positions within the Democratic stronghold of New York City. There's little documentation, uh, well, there's not little, but it's hard to find, about how he did this exactly. And because it's criminal, it's obviously not easy to find. For some reason, my page just refreshed, so I've got to scroll all the way back down. <laughs> um... I'm just assuming he used his streetwise tactics to work his way up through the offices that he held. <clears throat> he also had a law firm, which he used as an extortion tool and became very wealthy doing this. Uh, from there, his influence only expanded. He bought both the press and the stationery supplier. So not only did he buy the paper, he bought the literal paper. <laughs> and from then on, uh, then on out, uh, completely by coincidence, most of the papers in New York City spoke favorably of Tweed or at least didn't report his massive crimes. But you can see here I've included a little cartoon. Care to comment? That thumb is so disproportionately large. Yeah. What, it's what, like the... What, care to tell people what we're looking at here? We're looking at a... drawing of the city of New York with a hand with a little badge on it that says William Tweed on the cuff of the shirt... And this just god-awful, massive thumb pushing down on the city. Like, this this thumb is incredible. It's like the size of the rest of the hand. Like, this actually reminds me of a picture I saw the other day where somebody lost their hand in a or lost their thumb in a lawn mowing accident. <laughs> and they had their big toe surgically attached to replace it. Oh, it my was, gosh. <laughs> it was... 
I think I'd rather just go without a thumb personally because it was not a good look. Um, yeah. But, you know, I support their choice to have a, a toe <laughs> thumb or whatever. But this is what that reminds me of. It's just a disproportionately large thumb. And honestly, this is going to haunt my dreams. Yeah, it's the caption is under the thumb, the boss. Well, what are you going to do about it? And not to be rude, but I assume this is also a phallic symbol. Um, yeah, see, I wasn't going to mention that. I wasn't going to mention that the uh, the arrangement of the fist with the giant thumb <laughs> sticking out of it does evoke certain imagery that I was too polite to mention, but that's what we have Aaron for. Well, that's what artists do. They just sneak that stuff in whenever they can, but hey, you know, if you noticed back I, then, you would presumably be jailed. <laughs> don't forget to buy Aaron's upcoming book on phallic imagery. No! <laughs> <laughs> Now, the rap sheet of Tweed's crimes is extensive, but it's all paper crime, so it's difficult to process. This guy bribed everybody, was director of many companies just because he did favors for the owners, but the main thing is that through these dealings, he effectively had complete command of the entire New York City government structure by 1869. He was the de facto king of this land of concrete and soot, and there was nothing that was going to get in his way. Were you going to say something? No. Oh, I heard you on mute. Usually I hear that little button and I, I stop because I'm like, he's going to say something. No, no, I would, I'd just been adjusting my chair. Oh, and so okay. then I unmuted when I was done adjusting my chair. Because it's, like <laughs> it's like a Pavlovian trigger for me. I hear the <laughs> doot, doot, and then I'm like, okay, he's going to say something mean. <laughs> you brace yourself for the the cataclysmic fall of my words of the, approach. The papist rage from the other end. <laughs> Anyway, as we mentioned, one of the things that Boss Tweed had in his Monopoly coat pocket was transportation. Tweed controlled pretty much every horse cart in the city in one way or another through his dealings at Tammany Hall. But the growing city desperately needed an upgrade, because again, the population is huge, people gotta get places, goods gotta get transported, and uh, a horse and cart, it's a... It's a little medieval, you might Do say. Do you want to say something about what Tammany Hall is? Do you want to say something about what Tammany Hall is? I mean, it's been three years since I read up on it, so it's a little rusty. But basically, it's a political or pseudo-political organization, which in theory is designed that people can join it and, you know, get experience in politics and sort of learn how city government works and engage in civic activism and stuff but in reality it's basically the mafia but political and whoever's the boss of tammany hall is more or less the boss of new york city right <clears throat> and it's sort of like you, you have to think of well you pro people already probably think of new york city as like a separate thing but back then it was like really really separate they did not operate like a united states government at all like it it just didn't work that way um, it was sort of the law of the jungle out there. Whatever worked, that's what you did. It didn't matter if it was legal or not most of the time. So, uh, like Chicago. Yes, just like Chicago. Uh, which, you know, the shade of that city grows long over my region of the Midwest. <laughs> the country was crisscrossed with locomotive rail, rail lines and tracks, and many cities around the world and around America had been re-engineered or founded with this in mind. New York City, however, was pretty old and had arisen during the age of the horse and cart. Clearing buildings and roads to build some kind of Disney Express line around the city would be very difficult. But the city needed better, more reliable transportation nonetheless. 
They had options, of course, but none of them were entertained for very long because Boss Tweed didn't have the rail lines or any of those companies completely in his control yet. Uh, he had worked out some kind of deal to build an ele elevated rail line, um, but the project just kept getting postponed, it was getting expensive, um, and Boss Tweed doesn't really care all that much about getting it going um, because he's still collecting all this money from the streetcar companies. But eventually, you know, he did, as far as I could tell, he did expect to have some kind of a rail line at some point. So things went on like this for a while in the Rotten Apple. It was just the way things were. Alfred Eli Beach, however, was on a mission to change that. Born on September 1st, 1826, Alfred Beach arrived on the scene, the son of an expert in publications, Moses Beach. Uh, I miss the day when we had people named Alfred and Moses. Old-timey names really are something else. Yeah. Imagine your dad being named Moses. <laughs> I'd be like, kind of like having a dad named Jesus. <laughs> but Moses Beach owned the New York Sun newspaper in Massachusetts, where Alfred grew up and got his basic wait, education. Wait, 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 wait. What, 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 the what? New, the New York Sun in Massachusetts? Yes. Why is the New York Sun in Massachusetts? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> no further questions. <laughs> No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> well, my guess would be because Tweed, well, Tweed wasn't on the scene just yet, but I couldn't say, man. I don't know. I didn't really look into the New York Sun. It wasn't on my to-do list, so just back off with the questions, okay? It's our job to tell people what to think, not whether or not it's correct. <laughs> I'm just joking. So, anyway, while, while his dad was doing this... um, he had his son, Alfred, working alongside him at this New York Sun based in Massachusetts, <laughs> learning the art of journalism. Um, Beach observed quite clearly how much journalism actually affected the outside world. Stories could highlight things and make them explode. The paper could also ignore certain events while inventing entirely new stories from whole cloth. But Beach and his father ran a special kind of newspaper. It was known for its wit and its humorous approach to the news, as well as its conservative approach to editorializing stories. And don't get triggered, I, the word conservative just means they didn't put their opinions in the stories as much as they could. They just made jokes. Um, meanwhile, most other papers were clearly editorializing their stuff, and people liked that, but this was a different kind of show. Um, it was a very successful newspaper, and Beach learned that publications were extremely powerful tools. At the same time, as he was growing up, Beach had developed a strong in interest in invention and science, so it only came naturally to him to combine the two interests. His favorite periodical, above all, was Scientific American. Hold your applause. It was known for showing off cool inventions, illustrating what the future might look like if science had a free hand, and it was generally just rad. I mean, it, it was a cool little, little magazine. Um, and it wasn't the science we see today. Back then, there were articles about people who were genuinely trying to build perpetual motion machines, personal flight vehicles, and more cool things like that. It was a positive, forward-thinking publication, and Beach loved it so much, he bought it. <laughs> Man, I wish we still had publications like that. Don't you? Like, just, just something nice. Like, it's like, look at this guy. He's building a wingsuit. <laughs> No, I'd be so I'd be so much more interested in reading publications if it was like we're still trying to make a perpetual motion machine instead of like here's how intersectionality is expressed in the child laborers in the Congo who are mining the cobalt for your Tesla. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a different time, man. Very different time. 
Beach would work as the editor of, uh, of Scientific American, and that was just his day job. Most of his passion went to the inventions themselves, uh, and he frequently worked with inventors on their own devices. So he wrote this magazine, or worked in this magazine, or periodical, or paper, whatever you want to call it. Um, he worked on this, but like in his free time, he was helping the inventors themselves, and then featuring their inventions when they were done in Scientific American. So he was like, kind of like almost documenting his experience in the invention landscape. Because Beach himself was an inventor, um, and at the age of 21, applied for his first patent on an improved typewriter. Which, you know, hey, great. <laughs> this kept him occupied for a few years until he invented, wait for it, another typewriter. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but for blind people. Which, that just kind of shows you a little bit of what he's about. Um, he's putting his inventive mind toward problem solving for the good of humanity. Um, this wasn't something that was done. It had a, it was a typewriter with like raised letters on the keys so people could feel which, you know, where they were typing, um, that sort of thing. Um, that's nice. Yeah. Like I, I, that's really nice. Isn't that cool? Like he's kind mm -hmm. of a cool guy. Um, so this typewriter for the blind was displayed at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in New York in 1853. Oh, God, I knew we were going to end up yeah. somewhere like this. <laughs> if you want a good rabbit hole, we've mentioned that the Crystal Palace is a rabbit hole that leads all the way to Shambhala. <laughs> um, yeah. Did I say in New York? I feel like it's in London. Is there two? I feel silly. We'll just remove the in New York part. It was at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in 1853. <laughs> But Beach himself here is portrayed as a bit of a struggling crusader for the good of humanity by means of science. A pure soul lost in a world of materialism and corruption. Yes, there was a Crystal Palace in New York okay, in 1853. Okay, thank you for checking. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. I wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the way Beach is portrayed in almost everything that's written about him has my radar, like, beeping off the charts. It feels like Lincoln. I was just about to say this. This is exactly what you said about Lincoln. Yep. it's uh, He's portrayed in this fawning, almost smarmy fashion. Um, I feel like I'm noticing a pattern that's developing in our show. What's that? My episodes are like, look at this cool person from history who was actually cool. You're like, look at this cool person from history who was a dick. I'm not saying he was <laughs> bad. I'm saying his portrayal... <laughs> You read the book, I mean, the main book that I got for this was uh, The World Beneath or something like that. The World Beneath the City. I have some excerpts from it later on. It just, it just reads like, oh, he was so good in the world, just spat him out. And it's just like, it's kind of cringe. I don't know. I, I j but I do want to talk about it because I find this shrill technique of historiography uh, to be exactly that. Shrill. It's annoying. Um... There's like it's like the guy who does a cool thing, but those human animals out there tried to stop him because of their ignorance. Uh, it's like the scientists who sacrifice themselves for some kind of experiment for the good of humanity. You know, it's the Bill Gates, the Carl Sagan, the Stephen Hawking. Like, oh, we're so sorry for him. All rolled into one. Uh, the struggling midwit smart boy of H.G. Wells's time machine, or the brooding but decadent captain from Thirty-Three Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, or whatever. It's just such a meme these days, I have to give it a name. Therefore, I have forged a portmanteau of smart and martyr, quite simply, the smarter. 
Others will know him as the neckbeard, the guy who's so smart he knows the whole game of life but refuses to play. The guy who brags about calling the cops on his neighbors burning leaves in Lake County, Illinois the day the fire ordinance passed as if it were some kind of heroic action. <laughs> that guy, we all know that guy. And I refuse, I refuse to make Alfred Eli Beach a smarter. I won't do it. I'm not going to do that. He was an intelligent fellow who didn't win very often. That's that. Um, I don't feel sorry for him. He did some great stuff. He was a cool guy, but we're not going to talk about him. Like, he was a sad boy. He was a winner. Okay? Okay. <laughs> anyway, like okay. I said, Beach wasn't just a loser. And I'm not, I'm joking around with the way he's portrayed in history, but not joking when it comes to his actual achievements. A problem Beach wanted to solve was mail delivery. At the time, the extent of mail delivering technology was letter carriers and the railway. Telegrams were cool and all, but you can't send anything but some funny words. And everyone knows copy pastas get old. So Alfred gets to thinking, hey, how cool would it be if we had a series of tubes all over New York that could just launch little pods of mail all over the place? Can't wait till I get brained in the side of the head by a mail pod flying out of a sewer grate and I open it up and it just says, we've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. <laughs> I'm like, what's a car? <laughs> So this is like a little proto-internet, basically, because, you know, the internet's a series of tubes. Ha 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 ha. Now, I know what you're thinking. Are they going to fire mail from roof-mounted cannons just to save time? No, but that also wasn't anything new. There were a few times in history where people literally did use giant guns to fire packets of mail over long distances. This obviously delivered the mail very quickly, and according to scientists, receiving a mail by artillery fire is 33% more effective at establishing your total dominance in the sexual hierarchy. Of course, the only other way to establish your total dominance in the sexual hierarchy is to be a podcaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tracking. Okay. I'm tracking. Okay. I'm, I'm getting, getting amped up. This Canada Dry is really giving me the sugar spike I need. And it's preserving my voice. So Beach just goes and develops this pneumatic tube system and sells it in the 1860s. It's kind of a smash hit. And he even gets a little famous from it. Um, of course, we still use these today on a small scale at bank drive throughs and things, and we still have pneumatic systems in some buildings and things. Um, but Beach had an even bigger idea. I heard that button. I was just thinking, man, I when I was little, I thought the pneumatic thing at the bank was the coolest shit I had ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Like, my mom would, like, be, I'm going to run to the bank. I'm like, oh, can I come? Can I come? Because I just want to, like, sit in the car and, like, press my face against the little back window and, like, watch the pneumatic tube. <laughs> I Like, I was an enthusiast for pneumatic bank tubes. <laughs> <laughs> the average pneumatic tube enjoyer. <laughs> I was the same way as a kid. It's really funny. Like, uh, my mom would be like, going to the bank. I'm like, ah, I'm there. Put me in the car. And then, like, you know, the, the only thing that could make the day better then, and this is how I asked for this nonstop. If we saw a construction site, I'd always ask if we could pull over so I could watch it for a few minutes. And sometimes, sometimes my mom would let me and she'd pick me up and put me on top of the car so I could watch the construction machines. It was... So yeah, if uh, sometimes on one day I'd get the pneumatic bank tube and a construction site in, man, cloud nine, I'll tell you what. Yeah, your entire month was made from that point <laughs> yep. on. So Beach is very successful with this, um, and he had an even bigger idea, like literally bigger. What if we made the money launcher at the bank a human launcher? <laughs> 
That's right. Everyone's looking at Beach like, wow, now we can send letters anywhere we want. Thank you, Alfred. And he's like, want to see what else I got? Then pulls back a sheet revealing a giant version of the banking tube. He's just like, hop aboard. (laughs) So Beach would display this invention at the 1867 Fair of the American Institute in New York, not London. It was a 10-passenger carriage that drifted back and forth inside of a tube powered by a specialized fan nicknamed the Western Tornado. Which, I'm not going to lie, I love that name. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. I can't, I can't really, I, I don't have anything negative to say about that. Yeah, yeah. So Beach was not the only person working on this, by the way. Tubes like this were being constructed in Britain as well, and one was displayed and tested as an amusement in Crystal Palace Park in 1864. Um, it worked just fine, but was never actually put into full use. Um, that's kind of what happens to all of these experimental pneumatic subways. They're just sort of never finished, and they end up being buried and get rediscovered years later. It's kind of a weird pattern. And uh, it just reminds me of that episode of uh, Thomas the Tank Engine where they're bricking the poor guy in the tunnel. <laughs> uh, Sad. Yeah. <clears throat> in fact, there is an actually interesting story from 1978 about a woman who accidentally found this tunnel in Crystal Palace Park and on investigation discovered an old subway car stuck on the tracks and filled with skeletons in Victorian dress. I don't uh, think it's legit, but it's a story. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say, uh, who's, who's skeletons? Yeah. See, now I'm just imagining, like, an extremely cliched seed where, like, you're exploring something, and you climb into this thing. Oh, I wonder what this lever does. And you just press it, and shoom, he just sent down the tunnel in this tube. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Another cliche would be you pull that lever and a skeleton falls out of the ceiling compartment. Yeah. <laughs> ah! And then your blonde girlfriend starts shrieking. That's more Indiana Jones than anything. But anyway, Beach was this still. Is, this is cinematography, people. <laughs> this, is, this is how you do it right here. Yeah. But Beach was still dreaming of putting people in tubes and yeeting them all over New York. He had to compete with an elevated track that, like I said, was already being put to use, Um, and he had some legal troubles due to Boss Tweed. And some sources show that Boss Tweed openly opposed Beach, while some seem to indicate that Tweed was actually supportive of the project as long as he could get his cut, right? How everything else works. But from what I can tell, Beach and his team used the Boss Tweed hates him meme as a PR device to generate more love for Beach and his special tube. Um, Actually, yeah, that's like legit what they did. Um, they ins- they set up a big political, well, not political, but a big PR stunt that made Boss Tweed look bad. Even though, yeah. But anyway, whether it was an intentional PR move or not, which it clearly is, it's the story that stuck. So it works. And it stuck for a couple of reasons. First, public distrust of Tweed was already reaching its end. Um, <laughs> and what I mean is its height. And he was actually about to be arrested. <laughs> Second, Tweed was exactly the kind of guy you just want to blame for everything. He was fat, greedy, and looked like Klaus Schwab, and he wore a giant gemstone everywhere he went, as well as like a bunch of fancy rings and chains. Um, Just a picture of, like, I don't know, criminal, financial... A uh, pimp. Yeah, he looked like a pimp. (laughs) So a lot got laid at his door in regards to blame, and rightfully so. But this appears to be at least one story that got extra energy out of the public just because it looked like sticking it to the man. So here's how the official story goes. 
Um, the story goes that Alfred Eli Beach labored for years to get approval for his pneumatic subway system, and Tweed just kept squashing him because cronyism or whatever. Um, the story also goes that Beach said tearfully, yeah, this is important, that Beach said tearfully to one of his compatriots that they had to build this thing in secret for the good of the city, and he was prepared to take whatever legal punishment came his way afterward. And this is where we get into his portrayal as a as a smarter. <laughs> um, but the facts don't align here because Tweed was actually super stoked about the pneumatic mail system and had it installed like literally everywhere he could. And he even approved a beach digging a giant tunnel under Broadway using a special tunneling shield he'd invented. An early boring company, if you will. The only thing Tweed allegedly didn't know was that Beach was going to turn this giant tunnel into one giant pneumatic subway, as opposed to using it for more mail tubes. <laughs> so, here's how the pop history story goes. Um, the popular story is that Beach simply decided New York must have a pneumatic system! So he rented the basement of a clothing store, actually true, smuggled in tools and supplies for a long dig, and carted out debris and dirt, debris, debris and dirt under the cover of darkness in wagons that had special sound suppressors on their wheels. Because, you know, Tweed was sleeping at night, and you can just picture him in a, you know, a nighty and a, and a sleeping hat. <laughs> yes, um, with his little candle on a stick going to investigate the <laughs> suspicious wheel sounds. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't want to wake him now, would we? Um... The, t the team labored night after night with Beach's fancy tunneling shield, cutting through packed earth, clearing debris, trying not to collapse buildings, and avoiding ancient history labs. This was not an easy job. And it's told here in The World Beneath the City by Robert Daly, our first expert. Should I use a special voice for this? I'm assuming this isn't related to the Dailies in Chicago. I don't know. Why? I don't know, just those are the most famous dailies, and I was thinking maybe you should, could you do a Chicago voice? <laughs> well, this is New York, so, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to do, like, a New York City voice? Yeah, but dailies like a Chicago name. Oh. And maybe I'll do, like, an old-timey reporter. One okay, night the tunneling good. bore ran against stone. Oh, sorry. Rang against stone. None had been expected. Bit by bit, in the lantern light, picks chipped away at the earth until an entire wall was exposed. It filled the whole face of the shield. It looks like the foundation of an old fort, said an awed voice. What do we do now? asked another. Young Beach swallowed hard. Better get Pop down here right away, he said. A cab was sent galloping through the night to rout Alfred Beach from his bed. Half- <laughs> You were going to say something? I was going to say this reminds me of the time I was digging in Arizona and I found some sort of like doomsday food store laid down by like fundamentalist Mormons and I remember I was just digging because I was looking for treasure because that's what you do when you're like five and I found something I was so excited I actually yeah I went to get my dad and was like I need to show this to my dad I found a chest and that it was literally just filled with grain when my dad got it out and opened it it was really disappointing oh that's still a cool story though <laughs> half dressed worried Beach rushed from his house just as dawn was beginning to lighten the streets and buildings of Manhattan when he arrived in the tunnel, lanterns were held close while Beach examined the wall. If we remove that, stated someone decisively, the street will collapse. All awaited Beach's decision. Inside the shield, the men would be safe, whatever happened. But suppose the street did collapse. Beach imagined hordes of citizens peering down at the suddenly exposed diggers. I'd be like a... Well, that's a typo. It'd be like a man found naked in public, he thought. I'd be ruined. 
I guess it's not a typo. Whatever. A while longer, he gazed at the wall by the flickering light. Then he made his decision. Remove it, stone by stone. The tunnel bored on. It was a number of days before Beach could watch calmly while traffic thundered, thundered <laughs> over the undermined spot. He feared to see a sudden sagging in the street, a loaded omnibus or streetcar go pitching into the hole. But the tunnel held. Work went on under Broadway. Although the digging was finished in 58 nights, the better part of two years and $350,000 of Beach's own money were used to make ready the showpiece, which Beach at last exhibited to the public in February 1870. Damn, that typewriter must have sold well. Yeah, well, it was mostly a pneumatic tube. The mail oh, system. Okay. I was going to say, because $350,000 is a lot of money in 1870. Yeah, and it was pretty much most of his fortune. Um, he he did not die a wealthy man. I mean, he, he wasn't poor, but like he, he had a lot of money that he put into this. So he died with more money than John D. Yes. <laughs> but less magic and more science. I would like to talk to the angels one last time. <laughs> That's a good voice. That's... That's what I sound like today. <laughs> <laughs> so we, yeah, dear listeners, if you haven't noticed, Aaron and I are both sick. So that's actually one of the reasons I keep muting and unmuting is because I keep coughing. <laughs> <laughs> we got the monkeypox. It's in the throat. Um, uh, yeah, that monkeypox joke that dates the show. I shouldn't even say that, but that's fine. <laughs> this is no longer evergreen content, as they say in the advertising industry. Yep, yep. It's over. I just destroyed the podcast forever. <laughs> so the popular story continues and says that one day Boss Tweed just woke up and saw a crowd forming in the streets. Rubbing the sleep from his eyes and presumably hastily donning his bathrobe, he rushed into the streets to see what the commotion was all about, shoving through the crowd shouting, What's all this, then? Out of the way, peasants! Before being greeted with a perfected pneumatic subway. <laughs> with Alfred Eli Beach cringing out front, looking diminutive, holding his little hat in his hands and wearing puppy dog eyes. You only had to listen, murmurs Alfred, as Boss Tweed pulls the chief of police from the crowd and shouts, Officer Kilpatrick, arrest this man! That You gotta do an Irish accent, okay? Coming up, yep. Okay, so I'm... I'm You're the chief of police. There. Okay. <laughs> then the chief of police says in a thick Irish accent... <clears throat> Sorry, got to mentally get in my head space here. <laughs> the boy's done good, and you want me to arrest him? You got another line. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't realize that. Why, I ought to arrest you instead! Then Tweed gets dragged away into the paddy wagon, screaming, How dare you! What's the meaning of this? While everybody claps and 76 trombones bust out with when the saints go marching in. <laughs> okay, well that's how Hollywood would have done it. <laughs> Hollywood doesn't exactly have a photographic memory of history. It's more like a photogenic memory. <laughs> this joke was brought to you by Stephen Herberger of the Herberger Comedy Association. And it's a nice story, and it could have happened that way. But 20th century history is replete with smarter stories like this. It's the October Sky story of the nerd who just needed a chance, and I'm not buying it. <laughs> I already mentioned this, but what really happened, from what I can tell, is that Beach completed his project despite public concerns of tunnel collapses and a small legal grind that lasted for about three years. The thing ended up being more of an amusement than actually useful. It was, you know, played out like a roller coaster at Six Flags. Everybody wanted to get on. 
So it was basically proof of concept prototype and then no one ever used it again. I mean, as much as I hate to like acknowledge the concerns of people in New York, I do have to say I can see why people might have been worried about undermining major roads. Yes. Like, Grant, this is from someone who's fully in support of undermining roads in New York. But, like, <laughs> I can see why if you lived on one of those roads, you might have had slight concerns about a a man undermining the foundation of those roads. It's actually funny, not too far from me, actually, a 40-foot wide sinkhole opened up in a road last week. Wow. Alfred Beach still lives. He lives on. <laughs> He's just digging away under the surface. Um, Let's see. Yeah, so it was, again, like a proof of concept, and it had to be done in secret because people were like, hey, we this might cave in and we lose our, our entire block, right? Um, Which is where, you know, them portraying him as like a, they come to like a fortress wall, and he's like, Boron. Uh, he's a little bit cavalier about how he's doing this. And if it failed, like, he would <laughs> he would go down in history as a complete, like, villain. Would be my guess. Yeah. It, crazy man causes massive disaster in New York. Yeah. So anyway, um, we have another excerpt here, and I'm not going to do the old-timey voice. I'm just going to read it. Um, the old-timey voice is fun, but it's putting going back in the closet for now. For a year... Well, I'll just read it. I'll read it with the uh, the tone in which it's written. For a year, the car traveled, its progress obvious to all who passed near the ventilator grating at the corner of Murray Street. A fountain stood close to the grating, its bubbling water blown into spray, two stories high every time the giant fan underground went into reverse. The fan's intake was just as powerful. Letters, parcels, handkerchiefs were yanked from people's hands, hats were pulled from their heads, and all the refuse in the neighborhood was sucked against the grate. A moment later, all would be blown sky-high again as the little car below made its return journey. It was a corner people learned to stay clear of. During that year, Beach made every effort to keep his subway in the news, and he sought to coax dignitaries to ride in it so that reports would find their way into the newspapers. But he had little luck. With Tweed against him, no city or state official would come near the place. See, now I now this all makes sense with New York. It literally shoots trash in the <laughs> air every time you use it. Now it's now it seems like New York. Yeah, it it's steer clear of the Murray Street trash cannon, guys. <laughs> the PR aspects of this are also interesting. There was the shock reveal part of it. Um but the other part was the absolutely gorgeous presentation. It was only one tunnel, but the terminal was decked out with beautiful interior design, a grand, excuse me, a grand piano, chandeliers, and an aquarium. It was classy. And there's photographs and drawings of it and all the rest. Not as many. So how, fa how far did this one thing actually go? Um, not very far. I know it was longer than I expected, but I can't remember how far it was. You could be on and off in like 30 seconds. Okay, so not very far. Yeah. <laughs> now, as we learned with William Tell, it may not be true, but if enough people believe it, it might as well be. And the character Alfred was playing was the well-established meme of the highest order. Um, He was sort of, in this story, he's like embodying a trickster archetype, which is why the whole story reads like Bugs Bunny versus Elmer Fudd. <laughs> I was doing this research. I think you mean Elmer Tweed. Elmer Tweed. <laughs> That's what it felt like, though. Um, and I, I included a, a silly thought here. Um, 
but like these stories, like we read them, we're like, oh yes, uh, I see what the big bad tweed is doing to that that crafty, clever Alfred Eli Beach. They just sort of automatically fall into story zone. Um, I think that people just produce these story elements within historical accounts because it feels right. Um, like I would put this story, not the actual history of this um, pneumatic tube into the category of, and then the whole bus clapped, right? You know that meme, of course. Oh, yes. Yes. Where it's like, ah, yes, it just, it just plays out play for play like, oh, it was the perfect comeuppance for that evil person, that evil capitalist tweed, that criminal. It was just an unlikely little scientist, and then the whole bus clapped. So, um, it plays out like you'd expect it to as well. The pneumatic curiosity ran for about three years and died during the Panic of 1873. The actual clothing store was built in, burnt down in 1898, and the tunnel itself was dug back up in 1912, and it was still in pretty decent condition, surprisingly. Shortly after these events of the early 1870s, Boss Tweed was arrested for fraud or something, and his whole empire basically collapsed and his life ended in ruins. Like, he literally died in jail. Um, from high places, Boss Tweed. Ah, uh, finally, a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did escape once, and then they caught him. They're like, hey, come back. He's like, okay, and then he dies. Beach, however, according to the narrative, ended up just becoming a sad boy, um, which I don't buy either. The book I bought for twelve ninety five on Kindle suggests that Beach considered all of this to be a huge failure. So, just again, listen to the language in this conclusion of this chapter of The World Beneath the City. Um, Beach uh, became like a really, really religious guy um, after his forays in science, and so he became very, very conservative. He wasn't like a big spender or anything like that anymore. Um, he was... Uh, like, for example, he went to church every Sunday, and when he couldn't, he had a telephone wire installed in his house connecting his, like, home with um, his pastor's pulpit. <clears throat> so, anyway, there's the quote. He would invite his friends over to join him in worship. He would pass hymn books around, and all would join in the singing. Gradually, the pneumatic subway was forgotten, and with it, Alfred Beach himself. When he died of pneumonia on New Year's Day, 1896, at the age of 69, Illuminati confirmed, he had faded totally from the public view. His obituary in the New York Times ran only a few inches and attracted hardly any notice. There is a small postscript to this story. In February 1912, workers cutting the new BMT subway broke suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> what? The Italian BMT. That's the subway sandwich I talked about earlier. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> now this is Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> Workers cutting the new BMT subway. <laughs> Come on, boys. There's a new sandwich downstairs. <laughs> I'm just imagining a giant subway sandwich on a track. <laughs> it's arrived. <laughs> Italian herbs and cheese. <laughs> So they're cutting this new BMT subway, and they come across Beach's tunnel. All was as, as it had been forty years before when Beach had ordered it sealed up. Some of the wooden fixtures had rotted, but the air was dry and warm, and the tunnel was in good condition. Alongside the once elegant station, the little car stood on its rails, as if waiting patiently for its next load of passengers. The tunneling bore still plugged one, oh, sorry, read that wrong. The tunneling bore still plugged one end of the tunnel, 
waiting to be driven forward toward the end of the island. And then the whole bus clapped. I don't know. I don't like that tone of, like, the little car waiting patiently. <laughs> it's just, it rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> um, so the legacy here is that while the pneumatic transport idea was awesome and pictures of things, pictures of the thing would decorate the walls of subway restaurants until they were replaced by macro shots of tomatoes, <laughs> the idea ultimately, ultimately did not work out. <laughs> Through a mixture of political corruption and practicality, New York's first subway was a failure. And while the clamoring hordes of immigrants rattled about above, Alfred Beach's pneumatic human rocket launcher sat unused and unloved beneath the surface of the Earth. And that concludes our story. <laughs> R.I.P. in peace. R.I.P. in peace. Yeah. So, what's your, do you have a reaction to this? Well, I knew none of this. Uh, first, first off, I literally had no idea. I, every time I asked you what the episode was about, you just said pneumatic subways, and that was as far I never looked into it. So this has all been very illuminating for me. Um, but it kind it kind of tracks, doesn't it? The way that we like to assign sort of, like you said, archetypes to people in history, and so. <laughs> Boss Tweed is now a bad archetype, and so we need to make him the villain of the story, even if the story doesn't really have a villain. And even though Beach was, seemed from what you said, pretty clearly working with Boss Tweed, since he is the assigned hero, we need to sort of make it like they were against each other, even though they weren't. And this is just, I feel like this is a lot of times how people approach history is they need to decide who the good guy is and the bad guy. And if you need to rewrite the historical narrative to actually make that fit, well, you do, because that's, I feel like, makes it easier for people to digest history. Yes, that's very well said. And ironically, it's just uh, editorializing, which, you know, we talked about a little bit <coughs> with the New York Sun in Massachusetts. <laughs> um yeah, people people read these stories and they're ready to to imprint, you know, a uh, narrative on top of it, right? And sometimes it, I think that's just an automatic process with the collective mind and the collective unconscious. We just see stories, you know. Ooh, the collective unconscious. Carl Jung just perked up in his grave. Yeah, we still haven't covered Jung. That's going to be a really long episode. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to do that, you or God. me? Because I feel like we we both have a sort of different expertise which works for covering young yeah i don't know um i feel like we've we've never done a joint project oh geez i don't know man <laughs> maybe we could try it i don't know you could work on the history and i could work on the concepts um jung is crazy interesting though um he was jacked too from what i hear what <laughs> oh yeah jung was like jung was like big like apparently when he was like I'm trying to think he was like 12 some neighbor some like other kid in his neighborhood was like trying to bully him and Jung just like picks the guy up and like tosses him against a wall <laughs> activate the collective unconscious <laughs> conscious yeah but yeah it's a shorter episode today but I'm good with that um I actually didn't spend all that much all that much time uh writing so much as I did reading and trying to get separate facts from fiction and uh ah uh, the noble duty of the podcaster uh, yeah we do our best but uh yeah with that uh i think it might be time to head up to the surface what do you think i think so i've got to brew up another another batch of this like magical potion that my mom showed me how to make that 
makes my throat stop hurting. Maybe I could use some of that. Mm. It's only a 16-hour drive here. <laughs> yeah, maybe I could just get the recipe. How's that sound? <laughs> I was going to say, you can be here by the time I go to bed. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so let's go to the surface now. Air. Let's do it. <laughs> So, George, if you had to take down the entire corrupt structure of New York City, how would you do it, and what would be your escape plan? I guess I'm not allowed to say ants and ants again, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> um, well, I feel like it would have to involve subways, the sandwiches, not this transportation bullshit. Right, right, right. Any, any ideas? <laughs> what if we slowly replaced the foundation of blocks with subway sandwiches? That would be delicious. And that eventually a critical mass of Subway sandwiches will be reached and some sort of singularity will happen and the entire city will implode in upon itself. <laughs> streets. I'm assuming this is how that works with Subway sandwiches. Streets of spicy sort of like Italian. <laughs> once, you get the, once you get the critical mass and the demon core of Italian BMTs, <laughs> it just it all goes down. Yep. And what would be my escape plan? Mm, probably ride out of town on the pneumatic Italian BMT. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and w what about you? If you had to take down the entire corrupt structure of New York City, how would you do it? Uh, can I say ants? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Probably some combination of like uh, financial crimes and bank robberies. Maybe I'd do it like Joker style. But that's how New York City was built. Ha ha! What would be my escape plan? Um, be a banker? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it would definitely be the Bane escape from Wall Street. Motorcycle, dude on the back, hacking, that sort of thing. That's great. When I, when I got my new car, I literally, I had the gif of that all ready to go on my phone. The it's time to go mobile. And as soon as I picked up my new car, I sent that to like 10 people. <laughs> uh, classic. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of Alfred Eli Beach's human rocket launcher play you out. Yeah, listen to that bell. Oh, take a look at that. Oh, my God! Woo! Listen to that horn! Oh, my God! Oh, she's beautiful! She is beautiful, yeah! All right! Oh, my... Oh! Oh, oh. oh no, it's a PL2, too! Oh, 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 the SNC-52! Oh, my God! Oh, we're, we're going to watch this. Oh, this is special. This is special. Oh, oh that horn gives me the chills. Oh, and the chills have absolutely nothing to do with how cold it is here. Oh, oh but that doesn't stop a foamer. Oh, especially when it comes to heritage equipment. Oh, this is fantastic. Oh, oh my goodness. Look at that. Blue and gray. 
Oh, couple to the oh, Iowa Pacific. We're 518. Woohoo! Ah-ha! Woo! Listen to that horn. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh my gosh, look at that. All right. Ah. Oh. Oh. I wonder who TC Durant is. Oh well. Ah! This is just awesome. I've been waiting for this for months. Look at that. Illinois Central livery. Right here in North Creek. Ah! That is awesome. Ah. Oh yeah. Can't believe I got this. Oh yeah. Ah. I got seven Michael Lovins, about eight, thirty-eight, nine, nine, ten, max ten. The ship's never end. You can't touch my riches, even if you had AC Hammer and the 